Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle where today I'll be speaking with Dr. Mohammed Al-Amin Uthman who's a British Sudanese political analyst and researcher. We'll be talking about what's happening in Sudan amid a war that is claiming lives, that atrocities are being committed whilst the world pays attention to Gaza and various peripheral conflicts. We'll be talking about how we got here, what became of Sudanese calm, collected, cool society and how it is that we can emerge into a better future. Enjoy! One of the most tragic situations is when um, a calamity is befalling a nation, yet everyone else is looking elsewhere. And that's precisely what's happening in Sudan. For the past several months, we're coming on to almost a year now, uh, Sudan has been subject to a civil war, uh, probably funded or supported or aided by foreign forces, but it's a civil war between Sudanese factions. Uh, the armed forces as well as the rapid uh, rapid forces led by Hameti. But that has taken a turn for the worse over the course of the past few months when the entire world is, you know, focusing on Gaza and what's happening in Gaza. But in Sudan, the atrocities that are now being committed are almost beyond imagination, especially for those like myself who know the Sudanese people, who's been to Sudan. It's a place where you cannot imagine or picture that the kind of atrocities taking place could actually take place. What, what's going on? Why has Sudan arrived at the position where it is? it finds itself today? So you're, you're very correct in saying that it's pretty much out of, out of sight. And this is why many media commentators have described it as the forgotten war. Um, and because of it being the forgotten war, at least out of sight of the mainstream media, many of these atrocities have gone very either unreported or just as a small sideline. Um, unless you're looking for it, you, you'll find it. And uh, certainly the numbers coming out from Sudan are, are horrific. Um, and these are numbers which have been reported by international agencies, which makes it even more painful that it's not entirely unknown, but it's not receiving the attention that it deserves. Um, and certainly we're now speaking of at least 25,000 people killed since April of last year. We're speaking of what is probably the the largest human displacement crisis in the world. About six to seven million people displaced, uh, the bulk of internally displaced and about 1.5 million people refugees in neighboring countries. So even the numbers, and no human suffering is comparable to another. Yes, of course. But number-wise, it is larger than where the media is focusing um, at the moment. And we're talking about um, a society that is, well, at least how I saw it or how I understood it or how I, my own experience and the experience of many of my colleagues is that it's more or less a homogenous society. It's not at strife. There's no real divisions. I mean, there are, it's, it's, a, it's a multitude of ethnicities and, uh, and races and languages and the such probably, but it's, 
at ease with itself. I mean, I, I used to often look at my own Iraq, for instance, and then look at Sudan and say, you know, alhamdulillah, that it's not the same. But the fact is that over the course of the past few months, we have heard about deep divisions where the atrocities are largely committed because of a feeling of vengeance, of ancient, historic, old problems and strife for which now uh, the rapid forces are sort of delivering um, in, 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 a, in a way of payback or revenge. Um, let's go back to, I mean, we, we did a program last year uh, and we addressed the issue when it seemed like the armed forces were going to have the upper hand. But now it's a totally different situation. We're now seeing that the armed forces are very much on the back foot, that the rapid forces are absolutely dominant, probably not entirely throughout Sudan, but where it matters. And in light of the world being distracted elsewhere, in light of the story not being told, that's when the most horrific crimes are committed in the dark. And today in Sudan, unfortunately, we have an almost blackout. I mean, just before this recording, I tried and went on several websites, on CNN, on BBC, on Sky, on Reuters, and I checked. There was nothing, absolutely not even, a, you know, a tagline to do with Sudan. So there's an absolute, I don't know whether it's a blackout, deliberate or unintentional, but in any case, what's happening in Sudan is not being reported. The world doesn't know what's happening. I agree with what you say, it's, and, and that's a tragedy, um, because it's not like the crimes and atrocities have stopped, um, even until yesterday, um, at least within Sudanese social media circles, people are speaking of atrocities in the central state of Al Jazeera, where villages, whole-scale villages are being um, besieged, looted, um, people being um, uh, Terrorized, really. Uh, for there's no better way of describing it um, by the RSF um, um, forces, the militia. What? what how, why did the balance of power in terms of the conflict change so radically since you and I spoke last time? So when we last spoke at the time, the uh, Sudanese armed forces or the SAF, they had the upper hand. Um, they and probably because of their superiority with um, air power. And they'd managed um, to largely contain the presence um, of the RSF um, forces, whether in the capital or around the capital. And um, though they probably had less of an advantage in Darfur, which is pretty much the hinterland of many of the uh, the militiamen of the RSF, but still they had contained things. Um, but if you look at what's happened, say, since June 2023, July, the RSF has enjoyed pretty much unlimited um, support with the supply of arms, um, logistics, and fighting um, men um, who've joined the ranks, and the ranks have swollen since then. And this was not entirely unreported. Uh, indeed, um, the New York Times has covered it a few times. There was a recent report last week by their correspondent from Nairobi, Declan Walsh, and um, other commentators such as Cameron Hudson, who used to be a fellow at the Atlantic um, Council, have looked at it. And in very much detail, regional powers, and they've all pointed their fingers, not just 
these Western commentators, but even members of the Sudanese um, ruling council have all pointed fingers at the United Arab Emirates in supplying arms under the guise of humanitarian assistance. And this has also now come out in a United Nations um, panel of experts report, which was um, handed into the UN Security Council last week. Um, and th these supplies have come I mean, in. It's to, fairly to damning. Chat. I went through the report. It's quite damning. I mean, but but then there's almost nothing. I mean, let, let me ask you this. When we speak about the RSF, would it be accurate? I mean, I, and and I'm trying to um, to to be accurate rather than to uh, be um, to be defamatory. But they are a militia, are they not? Yes. I mean, and they are recognised even by the report. By the way, they describe them in terms that portray them as being a militia, whilst on the other side, the SAF is the official armed forces of the country. Am I correct in that depiction? Yes, absolutely, yeah. But yes. yet, but yet, we that, have... That's where the politics comes in, because... So, let's go back to where the RSF came from. Okay. So, the RSF pretty much is a succeeder or successor of what were the Janjaweed militia yeah. at the turn of the century, yeah. who, um, in very similar behavior to what we're seeing today, um, committed the atrocities which outraged, unlikely outraged the world, um, in, in Darfur between 2003-2007. And the world did take, there was a lot of noise, there was a lot of protests, and there was a lot of actions which culminated in an arrest warrant for the ex-president with the um, International Criminal Court in The Hague. Um, and that's obviously a huge contrast to what we're seeing today. Now, they were then... The Janjaweed, by the way, were largely Arab tribes. Is that correct? That's correct. They're they largely, largely Arab, Arab yes, tribes. Yeah. Largely Arab tribes. And these Arab tribes, though they are constituent of the Darfuri society, but they are largely nomadic tribes, pastoralists who roam with their cattle in search of pasture. And for, for decades, if not hundreds of years, there were seasonal clashes with what are known as the African tribes in, in Darfur, over land and rites of passage uh, and so on and so forth. But they were what you could term as traditional mechanisms to resolve these issues. Now, the, over time, the chronicity of this problem became an issue. And then also the supply and um, overflow of weapons from regional conflicts, such as between Libya and Chad in the 1980s, the famine of the 1980s, environmental change as well, pushed things further and complicated matters because it was becoming more mechanized, uh, much more uh, firepower was being made available. And then the politics within the country as well exacerbated these these tensions. So that that's where the root was. And the other side of the equation is, and this is to your previous question about the homogeneity of the Sudanese society, historical claims and feelings of injustice, inequitable distribution of power and wealth within the country, and the feelings of marginalization, amongst many communities, particularly in the peripheries of, of Sudan. And Sudan is a vast country. Sudan before the breakup yes, in of 20, of Southern Sudan. Southern, the independent Southern Sudan in 2011 was, was the eighth largest country area-wise before the breakup Absolutely. of the Soviet Union. Absolutely. And Darfur is somewhere the region size of France. So, so we're talking about vast areas. And therein is a blessing, but also a curse. curse of course. Because 
the development and infrastructure in the country was largely limited um, along the River Nile Valley region. And this was pretty much the infrastructure that the British left behind when they left the country in 1956. So there were areas which had better basic education. There was only one or two universities in the country, and they were centered in the center. So that led to the feeling of inequality, um, but people would kind of expand on that and feel that like this was not because of the legacy and not because that they, the development hadn't reached further out or the imagination or, or vision of politicians or the political class had encompassed the whole country. But rather, this was more of a conspiracy by certain deliberate policy by by those in power. Yes, so that that that's kind of the background to 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 much of this. Um, Huge changes happened within the last three to four decades because of more education being available, and where you have education, people have higher and larger aspirations. Of course, and the introduction of a federal system um, also. So. There was more kind of vying for political influence, questions asked about um, distribution of wealth, because these these areas are very rich, the Savannah region, you have the Gum Arabic, you have livestock, and lots of it is exported. Um, and the questions about where does the money go back, why does it go to the center and then get redistributed and so on and so forth. So that all of that played 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 a role together. Can I just add to that something that I knew, but I didn't have specific information. But now more and more, um, I'm finding out to my absolute amazement. And that is, I always knew that Sudan was uh, a land which contained within it immense riches, minerals, um, gold, um, probably even oil and various other minerals that the entire world needed. Um, But recently, I'm finding out that those riches were quite vast. They were quite, we're not talking about, I mean, we might be talking about swathes of land that seem to be barren, but that's not because Sudan is a poor country or an impoverished country. It's because either those riches were unexcavated properly and unutilized properly, or they were, but they were going to various Sources that didn't uh, feed back to the Sudanese population throughout the country. Am I correct? I, I would say yes. And um, the a lot of Sudan's riches and and uh, and wealth. I mean, we're talking about tons of gold every single year. Gold, tons of gold, minerals, um, suitable land for agriculture. Yes, a lot of it was untapped for decades, untouched. Um, but when it started to be looked at and exploited, there were issues with transparency, there were issues with where, how it was distributed, and a lot of this also fed into the current um, struggles. Because, for instance, and um, this is not just unique to Sudan, um, the issue of agriculture and Sudan has vast agricultural potential, but it didn't have the infrastructure or the funds um, and perhaps at, at times the um, the technology to to um, um, to invest. So deals were struck up with a number of Gulf states, such as Saudi Arabia. Um, there was a deal with the Kingdom of Bahrain, with the United Arab Emirates, to exploit lands at a lease of, for instance, ninety nine years. But there was always questions about 
the fairness of these deals, the transparency of these deals. And this has been an issue throughout Africa, not just in Sudan. I remember there was a report um, in The Economist, I think a few years ago, about these cash for land uh, deals and if they're detrimental to local populations and to the environment and to the water, the underground water tables and, and resources uh, and how depleted they might become and so on and so forth. Uh, so again, that the blessing can turn into a curse um, again. Clearly. And because of these vast lands, for instance, in Eastern Sudan, even though we're, much of the problems at the moment are in the West, but Eastern Sudan, you have vast land known as Al-Fashaga, which has always been a, a hot spot of tension between Sudan and Ethiopia, because Ethiopia with the highlands has little land suitable for farming. And every year we have armed incursions. And it's also then from Ethiopian um, gangsters and, and, and farmers and Ethiopian armed units to try and gain control of Al-Fashaga so it can be used for, for agriculture. And this also brings back again the whole issue of um, our national borders. Uh, if you look at the map of Sudan, you'll notice some of the borders are just straight lines, straight lines. in the Absolutely. sand. It was. Uh, I remember back in, in school when during geography, it was one of the easiest countries to draw the map of because it was a, it was a series of straight lines that make up a particular shape. I mean, it's but these straight lines have divided clans and tribes, families and families and... on on both sides. Economic interests. They're not natural borders yeah, such as rivers yeah, or yeah. streams or hills or mountains as other parts of the world, and that itself. Do, doesn't help with, with this huge explosive mix that we're, we're, we're putting the pieces, the jigsaw pieces together. Because then this movement, who regulates this movement? Uh, you're not going to be able to regulate it with an e-gate like we see in modern European airports. It's a, it's a totally different reality on the ground. And the institutions of modern civil states, how do they work within these traditional structures? So a lot of these issues that we're, we're, we're touching on or we've just mentioned, many of them are birthing or growing pains of, of a nation within borders which were not necessarily defined by that nation, but rather by the powers, the colonial powers of the time, whether the French or the, the British, um, nearly 100 to 200 years ago. So all of this together is part of the mix which has led to, to what we see now. That doesn't absolve, obviously, Sudanese people or their political class, political leadership from their responsibility uh, because they either did not look deeply into these issues or did not um, address them adequately and seriously over the years and just left things bubble under the surface. So that's why you'd have this image or picture of a very happy, um, calm, generous society, but all these undercurrents and all these bubbling issues were that volcano was just the, the building ready up to, to, to erupt to erupt under the ground okay draw us a picture of what's happening today it's painful uh, because uh, the news that i've read the reports that uh, i have and the feedback from friends such as yourself uh, on what's happening to their loved ones and families and relatives and the such is is truly heartbreaking um, but i think it's important that people know what is happening? Draw us a picture. So on the military side of things, the, the rapid support forces, RSF, have had the upper hand, particularly in Western Sudan. So out of five states in Darfur, they now control pretty much four states, with the exception of Northern Darfur. 
which was widely expected to fall into their control, but has kind of not because there seem to be some informal agreements and arrangements between traditional sectors of the Darfuri um, society. Uh, they pretty much then, if you're coming towards more central Sudan, have control of large areas of the Kurdufan region, probably most of three states. And within the capital Khartoum, and again, to, to, to put things into perspective, Khartoum state is, um, the capital is made up of three cities, uh, and the state itself is quite a large area. It's actually twice the area of the state of Lebanon. Pretty wow. much a state of historical Palestine, so it's it's a quite a larger. Most of the um, until recently, most of the strategic and key political buildings, institutions have been under the control of the Al But it's important to note they didn't gain this control in Khartoum through fighting, but rather because they were there when the fighting broke up, because they were guarding the key inst institutions, installations, such as the Republican Palace, such as the Parliament buildings, such as key ministries, um, such as the main um, oil refinery north of Khartoum, and, and so on. So much of it was already under under their control. Now, there seems to have been, the the other area where they control is the Jazeera state, which fell pretty much in the last six weeks or so. Uh, with its capital, Wad Madani, which um, fell in very mysterious circumstances, let's put it that way. It wasn't really much of a, a fight, which led to questions of why the army seemed to have withdrawn without fighting, when it was quite um, a well-fortified city because of the nature of the, the curve of the, the Blue Nile around it and leaving only one way in. But that's been the case in other areas, which led to questions about... Um, how much money has been exchanging hands throughout the conflict. Probably a mutiny of sorts. Uh, mutiny or just sell, sell, selling out or uh, or whether just being totally sheerly overcome by, by numbers at, at times. Um, but within Khartoum, if we look at Umdurman, which is like the national historical capital, there the army for the first time in months has managed to succeed in pretty much liberating at least 80% of, 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 of the city, and it's a vast area. But that also kind of reflects, I think, what could be described as the fighting tactics of the RSF. The RSF use a fighting tactic um, of mobilization. In Arabic, they call it al-faza, where they, they mount large attacks by mounting all their power, which is usually four-by-four pickups, land cruisers, and that's why they're very fast, and one kind of devastating wave um, but at the expense of pulling their fighters from elsewhere. And the army tries to move in, but then the army doesn't leave people behind, and that's why these waves come back. So it's been a bit of a go and, go and come back kind of thing within, within the capital. So all this is a, kind of the side of the country which the RSF has pretty much the upper hand, but eastern Sudan and northern Sudan, there, there isn't really much of a, um, a presence there, though... There seem to be countless threats from media outlets or social media outlets and accounts which are sympathetic to the to the RSF. Though one would hope that this doesn't happen because when when we spoke of the historical injustices or inequalities and the feeling of marginalization, a lot of the feeling of unhappiness, um, animosity at times, is targeted towards the, the North. So any transfer of fighting towards the North is probably going to make perhaps the bloodbath which has happened in certain parts of Darfur seem to be a picnic compared to what might happen in the north because 
there's a heightened sense of of injustice targeted towards the, the the north because the north is seeing as having the political elite which has controlled the country since independence and so on and so forth so one fears that we might have not even seen the worst of this despite how ugly it has been so my far word, my word what i don't get is this and try to explain it to me you would think that such battles are essentially for power you know the rsf are um fighting this war committing what they're doing uh in order to gain power yet the crimes that are being committed on the way belie that how on earth will you come to govern a people and to govern a country after you have committed in many incidents massacres when you've caused millions to leave their homes and lands when you've caused the kind of chaos that you have i mean am i right in assessing or assuming that they are after political power they are heading towards khartoum so that they gain that kind of political stability where the, where they then then can can govern the country absolutely or is there something else that they're after so i think that there are two things i i would say because i i totally agree with your assessment here and and why it look it would seem that um this is not the conduct of somebody who would like to rule a country i think there's been a shift in let's say the master plan or the or the plan that the rsf commanders or leadership had what happened on the 15th of april last year um in my view was a an attempt at a unconventional military coup takeover because despite that many people um, point fingers of accusation at the uh, ex regime sympathizers as waging the war or sp- or leading the first spark of, of the war it was very clear that the first attack the first maneuvers in the days before were, were all from the rsf and they have videos have circulated of their uh, um fighters entering central khartoum on early hours of the morning the fighting started about 9 10 pm 10 am so the sudanese um, local time 15th of april 15th of april 2023 2023 but their first attack was actually on the residence of general abdul fattah al burhan who's the the, the leader of the chief of the army and pretty much the de facto kind of ruler of the country as head of the sovereignty council and it was only because his the presidential guard had put up such a fight that he was able to make it out un, un, uh, unwounded not, not killed so it's clear an attempt to take him out now had he let's say been severely wounded or or died in the attack what would have happened that morning was that because hemeti was his deputy he would have automatically assumed chairmanship and therefore of the sovereignty council and therefore and all of this would never have happened all of this would never happen so it makes me feel that this was a quick power grab and then when it happens you can always lie the blame with other third parties that they instigated some attack a terrorist attack or whatever and but we've now resumed law and order and we'll go on with what was the what was known as a political framework agreement which was being um, introduced under the um, sponsorship of the uh, UN uh, mission at the time UNITAMS but that didn't happen that didn't work and that also might in a way explain why the sudanese army at first seemed to have the upper hand because you had a, a certain plot or plan it didn't go to uh, as as planned uh, and the the man the targeted man got away uh, and but you didn't necessarily have a plan b at the time 
So that's why the army was able to rally itself. The air force was able to um, attack and destroy a number of bases belonging to the RSF around the capital uh, and so on. But then things changed. And, but despite things changing on the military side with the supplies coming in, which have been documented, as we said, by UN bodies and by international experts and, and some members of the press who've been writing about it and other people who are concerned about Sudan. But despite that, you have yet to really crystallize and present a political vision. There have been statements coming out on, on the Twitter account of Hemeti, um, for instance. But obviously, what you put out on Twitter is not a political program. And certainly, if that political program isn't translated in the conduct of your, of your men or your soldiers who are fighting in the ground, that makes me question that, is it a genuine political program or is it just something you are putting out for public relations. Now that leads to the question, all this, the, the looting, the, the behavior of, or conduct of looting um, of human rights abuses, terrorizing civilian communities, occupation of civilian residences and homes, and even rapes of, um, uh, which have happened and have been documented by independent bodies. That doesn't tell me that you have a political program, but rather you, you are possibly terrorizing local communities and probably impoverishing these communities. The, the number of cars belonging to civilians which have been looted and taken away, as far as therefore you're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of kilometers away, has been estimated at nearly 150,000 cars. The amount of Gold, and this is gold from jewelry, personal belongings looted from banks taken to Western Sudan has been estimated at a number of tons. And this is not um, undisciplined soldiers looting for personal gain. It's been taken en masse. Systematically. Systematically. Uh, so when you put this, and this is my personal suspicion, when you when you put this, and contrast with the historical issues and claims of inequality, marginalization. To me, I could, the, what, what, what screams in my head is re-engineering the distribution of wealth in the country. Wow, wow. But such, I mean, it's, um, it belies belief that, uh, I mean, that, that any particular faction that is engaged in this particular conflict, committing these sorts of crime on that kind of level could, I mean, uh, you know, as a political analyst, sometimes you draw up scenarios. So, okay, so one of the scenarios is that ultimately the uh, rapid uh, support forces, they win, they achieve a military victory, they vanquish, you know, their, their, their adversaries, the Sudanese armed forces, and they gain power. But then how will they rule? How will they, how will they govern? in it, with with what with the remnants remnants of what exactly it's uh, it's something that i find very difficult to align along the norms of political thinking unless and this is uh, i'm going to delve a little bit into conspiracy theory unless the plan is and and you've drawn a very good picture that the idea was to to win from moment 1 
And when that didn't happen, then all chaos broke broke loose. But was chaos in Sudan, throughout Sudan, was it in itself a pursuit, at least for the time being? And for various reasons, whether it be Sudanese-centric, whether it be African, regional. I mean, Sudan isn't that far away from what's happening in the African Horn, Bab el-Mandab, the Indian Ocean, and the such. It's not that far away from. I mean, we heard that how Egypt was supporting the Sudanese armed forces to start off with, particularly that it was at least holding its side of the bargain on the Nile, uh, you know, against Ethiopia. But, you know, again, was this chaos in a way deliberate? The coming together of warlords in Libya, you know, we have the Colonel Haftar, who is apparently close friends and buddies with Hamiti. Does that mean anything? Does that indicate or draw or point to anything in particular? So I think that there are many actors in the region who do have a vested interest in seeing chaos in Sudan. Um, at best, a weakened Sudanese state and perhaps even a, an implosion of Sudan. Mm. Um, towards the end, you mentioned, for instance, Haftar. Yeah. So three days before the three or four days before the outbreak of uh, the fighting, his son, Siddiq Haftar, was in Khartoum, yeah. and he was officially and openly received by Hemeti. And being honored. And and he was uh, given an honorary uh, chairmanship of Al-Mirikh uh, Football Club, which, which is, is one, one of the, the two foremost. There's always Al-Hilal and Al-Mirikh. Exactly. Throughout. Exactly. But what, ha- what ha- hadn't been reported then was that one of the other important people with um, As-Siddiq Haftar was General uh, Khairi Tamimi, who is Haftar's um, kind of chief of staff and probably one of his very key, key men. Now, I'm not sure what Khairi Tamimi would have to do with um, a banquet celebrating somebody becoming chairman of a football club. So, and, and again, let's go back to the UN um, experts' um, um, report They've, they've spoken of the different uh, Libyan armed factions which have been facilitating the flow of arms and logistics into Sudan um, for, from Libya through Al-Kufra and, and from Sabha uh, in, in very much detail. And again, this is a UN report. This is n- not a political true, activist true, true. making wild claims. Ethiopia. Um, Ethiopia, um, and this is not just something to do with um, the government of uh, Abe Ahmed, it's always been a well-known fact in the regional politics that Ethiopia would prefer a weakened Sudanese army, um, pretty much because a weakened Sudanese army can mean that these incursions into the agricultural lands um, in eastern Sudan is much easier, and also because Sudan is seen as sympathetic um, towards Egypt when it comes to the distribution of the, the Nile waters, and certainly with the um, security of the new Ethiopian dam. Which but there's is nearly... a difference between a weakened Sudan, a weakened armed forces, and a chaotic country the size of Sudan, which could probably, uh, at one level, destabilize even and create chaos within within the borders or, or within even proper Ethiopia. Uh, and, uh, and I think some, some of the region is starting to wake up to that. I mean, certainly South Sudan. Um, there was some sympathy um, among certain sectors of Sudanese, southern Sudanese political class towards the RSF. And probably some of that stemmed from 
historical grievances against against northern Central, Sudan. Uh, Sudan yeah. But certainly some of their political class have been speaking in louder terms that it any collapse of Sudan would be an absolute disaster for the South because the South is landlocked. The oil which is exported from South Sudan goes through a pipeline which has to go traverse. You're looking at about 1,600 kilometers of pipeline across Sudan to Port Sudan. And, and therefore, that would also be a, a choke on, on, on South Sudan. Um, Chad, again, Chad has uh, been a big supporter, no doubt, of the RSF. But at the same time, parts of Chadian society are getting worried because if the RSF does gain the upper hand or there's total um, collapse in Sudan, that will also affect the internal dynamics because the RSF is largely Arab hailing from Arab ethnic groups. Yes, yes. Whereas Chad is governed by Zarawa, who, and there is a delicate ethnic balance within Chad, which will now be tipped. Um, so it is a very, very dangerous situation if there's a total collapse. I mean, the possibility, the, the probability of chaos regionally is far more probable than the uh, the prospects of neighboring countries benefiting because of the chaos of Sudan, at least in my reading. And this is why some of them probably wanted a weaker state, but now the scenario that's going on, if, if it continues to be pushed this way, is going to be a collapse of the state. Um, because at the moment, to be honest, there isn't really much of a state we don't, there's no law and order, there's no police, um, pretty much all the areas that have been overrun by the RSF, and this goes back again to your question about what program or how they plan to govern the country. These areas no longer have any resemblance of any civilian administration. Despite that, for instance, in Western Darfur, they um, appointed governors and appointed commanders for local garrisons. But again, and this has been verified by the, uh, the recent UN report, um, they haven't really, really had much influence or, or effect on the ground. And again, going back to the nature of the administration presented by the RSF, in many parts of Darfur, people who have been appointed were actually ex-officials of al-Bashir regime, which also casts a question mark about, you, you are also part of the PR game, is that we are fighting against Islamist elements yeah. of the Bashir but era. You're bringing back the same people who are part of that but, but regime you're bring, that you're fighting. You're bringing back regional and local um, officials and administrators who were who were part of that regime. And um, it is a well-known fact that even within higher levels of the RSF, there are people who were uh, members of the National Congress Party, which was led by or chaired by al-Bashir. Uh, certainly for, for one instance, the, the main spokesman of the RSF, he was a, a student leader of the Islamist students from, from the National Congress Party in Western Kurdistan University. So all of this, tell me, I mean, the thing that, um, I mean, one of the things, there are many things that uh, confuse me, but, uh, but one thing that always stands out is the position of the Arif African Union. The African Union took a very bold stand when the ICC decided to... <clears throat> to summon Omar al-Bashir, the former president. And I remember the very brazen comments and statements and even African countries opening their, um, their borders as well as their skies to the Sudanese official 
a presidential plane flying in for conferences, meetings, and the such, which enraged the West. And uh, and uh, you know, at the time, I remember the head of the ICC condemning the uh, the African nations who would receive someone whom you know he at the time said was. Uh, uh, was an international criminal, basically. It was someone who had committed war crimes, someone who was to stand before uh, the world answering for crimes committed uh, you know, by the Janjaweed uh, in Darfur. Uh, yet, when all of this is happening and the kind of impact we've just spoken, on, uh, spoken of on various regional countries, the African Union's position is really precarious, is quite conspicuous in terms of its almost, I wouldn't say indifference, but it's as though it's decided not to get involved when it's entirely involved. What, how do you explain that? So when we go back to the ICC indictment of al-Bashir and the AU response, I think part of it was an act of solidarity stemming from the fact that every let's say, dictator or leader, knew that he could fill those shoes in, in short time. So that that's probably my very kind of cynical uh, assessment. Of, so it, of, was a, a, uh, it was a move of self-preservation rather than care for Sudan. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Or stand for justice, yeah. let's just say. But then again, we don't have to go back too far. Remember when the um, um, armed conflict broke out in the Tigray um, uh, region in, in, in Ethiopia. The AU was practically silent for six weeks while Abiy Ahmed totally bombarded and, 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 and uh, flattened the, the Tigray um, uh, uh, movement. Even though the AU um, buildings or the headquarters are based in Addis Ababa, they probably could literally hear the, the, the fighters taking off, but they were very, very silent and quiet. Um, and I think the Ethiopian um, influence in the AU has has a role. The influence of the current chairman of the um, AU uh, Commission, Musa Faki, who's from Chad, he's an ex um, foreign minister, and who's widely believed to have um, family ties even with uh, Himeti, the leader of the ISF, uh, and the regional politics. Um, when you look at the Horn of Africa region, you have countries which are seen as uh, sympathetic, if not um, supportive of the RSF, including Uganda, uh, Kenya, whose president has well-known um, uh, uh, ties and relationships with Himeti. It's widely reported that um, they even have commercial interests in there. There had been reports about um, certain um, uh, commercial ties between the two men. Um, and then you have um, Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, who, who is known to be sympathetic to the RSF. So, um, again, um, commercial, personal interests lie, lie at the, uh, the base of this. And um, if we take a step back again, many countries, I suspect, fear a strong Sudan. Because a strong Sudan, its influence is not just within the country. It will spill over. So if we go back to 1989, when al-Bashid took over. Now, al-Bashid didn't take over on his own. He had a very well-organized uh, political movement, which had its vision, the Sudanese um, Islamic movement, supporting him and guiding him. 
and they had a vision not just for Sudan but also for the region. Um, now, whether you agree with it or disagree is another matter. But when you look at it, within two, three years of Al Bashir taking over, there was a change within the region. Um, Hussein Habri in Chad yes. was was overthrown by Jistibbi, who actually, um, even though he was um, expelled from Western Sudan, but his forces were in Western Sudan. Uh, the um, ex-ruler of um, Ethiopia, uh, Mangistu Halimariam, was overthrown by armed forces from both the Eritrean and Ethiopian um, resistance, and that also led to the, the um, independence of Eritrea. And all these movements were based within Sudan, and Sudan was widely accused of leading this change. And therefore, that, that is also part of the regional balance why too strong a Sudan is going to lead to change because of the interaction and movement between these countries, the shared tribes, the shared clans, um, and therefore keeping it weak or controllable is a vested interest for many of these countries, even if it means aligning themselves or being sympathetic to somebody like Hemeti and the RSF. I uh, I buy into that, I have to say. I buy into the fact that um, a powerful Sudan, a stable Sudan, um, is uh, could be perceived by many as being a threat. Um, I still go back to the immense riches, besides uh, human, uh, mineral, material, um, agricultural, and the such. The, 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 uh, the geopolitical strategic location of Sudan, by the way, being at the, at the crossroads of many... Um, uh, other African countries, uh, trade the routes, pipelines, energy lines, and the such, is is something I, I think that many might might see as being a potential if Sudan realized its uh, its potential in, in being stable and being uh, and achieving development as it as it should, as one would have hoped, um, that it could become. Um, uh, a magnet to destabilize many regional uh, regimes and the such, particularly those that are corrupt, those are, who are engaged in um, in various activities that uh, go across or against the, the interests of their own people. And I'll just add to that actually another thing. Because it's also being portrayed as the relationship with the Islamist elements of al-Bashir regime, obviously the, because this is now the modern-day bogeyman. Yes, of course. But even if you go back in Sudanese history, Sudan, even when Sudan was part of the non-aligned movement, it was a leading member of the non-aligned movement, Sudan was one of the first countries, again, to break from recognition of Taiwan and, and go f and recognize uh, China, China in 1959. That wasn't an Islamist regime. That was just a, nation, a national regime. Sudan was host in the 50s and 60s to all sorts of um, freedom movements and fighters and figures such as uh, uh, who'd come through Khartoum, such as Lumumba, Man Nelson Mandela. And it's widely believed that even at some time, Nelson Mandela had been given use of a Sudanese passport to facilitate his movement. Now, this has nothing to do with the current day Islamist, non-Islamist. This is just regional and continental. This, is this uh, to me, it sounds like Sudan playing uh, its role playing a role to its full capacity, um, uh, finding its potential. 
And I recall also the uh, the various international summits, including the Arab Summit and the IOC and the OIC, sorry, and, and various other summits that uh, Khartoum uh, hosted. And that makes what's happening today even, even more painful. And um, not only the fact that a country that has failed to realize its full potential and to be the kind... Uh, I recall many years ago translating a report from the Food uh, Agency of the United Nations uh, talking about that region of large parts of Sudan as well as other countries around the Nile River being one of the baskets of the world, which if the world went into a dystopian kind of uh, existence, uh, this would be able to feed uh, the entire world. Um, but you look, you, you know, you look at the situation now and the kind of atrocities being committed almost every single day in Sudan and the absolute unclear vision. I mean, like I said, the question about what do the RSF want is really important. And to me, it plays heavily on my mind because usually in conflicts, well, it's one side against the other vying for power. And you sort of draw scenarios. So if this particular power dominated, this will emerge. If this particular power dominated, this will emerge. But in the case of the RSF and what they're doing and how they're pursuing whatever goal they're, they're pursuing, you can't really draw any kind of scenario. It's absolute chaos. And it's an absolute calamity should they, should they win. You know, sometimes... Uh, in long-drawn conflicts. You just wish for anyone to win just to bring to an end the suffering of the ordinary people, okay? And you say, whatever emerges, you'll be able to deal with, okay? You'll draw up whatever plans or the such to deal with that dominating power. But in the case of Sudan right now, you can't do that because should the RSF gain the upper hand and khalas, the SAF are vanquished somehow, uh, you can never tell what's going to happen after. Absolutely. And and this is why um, it's a complete tragedy to, to see some of the Sudanese political class chasing this um, illusion that they can sit down and um, draw up agreements with the RSF. And specifically, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking about factions such as those led by the ex-Prime Minister Hamdok, who met with the RSF commander in uh, Addis Ababa recently and uh, set out this declaration of principles of um, how to end the war and um, a democratic um, transition and um, a federal state. Which seems he, he's not really paying attention to what's really happening well, on the ground. Well, on the ground, it's um, if this is how you realize democracy and freedom and uh, fairness and rule of law. May um, we never have democracy or freedom or the fairness if this is how we get it. It's a very dystopian uh, it's incredible. Uh, picture on the ground. But then again, because they are going down the very same road of many opportunistic politicians, other parts of the Let's bring up this bogeyman that the world's scared of. Yeah, there's those evil... Islamist elements of the ex-regime who sparked off the war um, and who've kind of derailed the transition towards democracy. But then again, well, okay, those evil Islamists 
with blood draping from their hands, steam coming out of their devilish ears, and, and whatever that kind of picture you want to draw. Hamati was part of that regime. The Asif was created with that regime. So what makes him the champion bearer of democracy and freedom and fairness and rule of law when he was actually the bloody tool of that regime in genocide before? Who's doing the, the promotional PR work for the RSF? Or are they not even caring for... Well, actually, they have a very well-oiled PR machine. They Run by whom? So Run where? Um, different elements. Um, certainly fingers were pointed out to, um, I, 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 I don't recall the name, but it was a Canadian PR firm, which uh, was being paid a handsome amount of money in millions of dollars. Uh, and certainly lots of fingers, I mean, people like uh, Cameron Hudson, who's now widely seen as a Sudan expert, he's, he's openly accused um, the United Arab Emirates um, of of leading on the PR effort through its um, influence in the regional media, um, and 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 they certainly have a very a very um, and it is much more successful than the PR effort, let's say, of the of the Sudanese army or the Sudanese state. Um, and uh, let's end with trying to ascertain where the Sudanese people stand. I mean, are they as divided as? you know the tribes and the uh, and the various sections and factions of Sudanese society or are they more united than one is led to think what 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 do they i mean i'm talking about the sudanese in either in diaspora um or the sudanese who have been displaced whether within sudan or outside of sudan so we're talking about millions of people and many of them influential either academically or politically or financially or the such what what kind of what kind of uh, a feeling or sentiments do you feel do you sense that is dominant? So definitely, I I would say there is a huge split in Sudanese society because now that's been aggravated by war and the atrocities which have come with with the war, and the danger is that the social fabric of the Sudanese society or the largest Sudanese society has probably been dealt. Um, a very serious, if not fatal, um, um, injury and wound um, to the extent that um, people are now pondering openly about the future of the state and whether we should continue as a single country. Now, I don't totally agree with that. I, I firmly believe that a diverse Sudan can find strength in its diversity if it is administered and governed and handled fairly, freely and in a transparent manner. But you can't sweep away what's happened in the last in the last year. Now, the other side, what's also happening, at least in central and northern Sudan, where the RSF has overrun and all these atrocities have been committed, is now what I feel is the beginning of an appearance of probably a new, at least social movement at the moment, of popular resistance. Now, even though fingers are being pointed that this is just... Um, an umbrella group or a front for the old regime or people sympathetic to the army, I think it's a lot more profound because people are feeling that where the army has not been able to defend them, they have now had to resort to defend themselves. Now that is going to manifest itself in military means or um, uh, paramilitary means, uh, and that is a danger obviously in itself. 
But eventually, I do think it is going to turn into a political, a socio-political movement, which might actually do away with much of the older political class that we've had. Because where we are now is also the responsibility of the older political class and of their failings. And perhaps this is the turning point. We might not realize it this year or in the next few years, but over the next few decades at least, it's probably going to be a major turning point in Sudanese pol politics and Sudanese history. And I, I do think that's probably what we are going to see. How soon it crystallizes is a matter to be seen. <laughs>